I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll study verses 6 through 23. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. You're going to probably see me <laughs> moving stones around to hold my pages down, so please excuse that. Let's read the Word of God. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men whom were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin... Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nov, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahituv. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent summon uh, to Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahituv, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nov, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahituv. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, Turn your hand and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nov, the city of the priest, He put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahituv, named Aviathar, escaped and fled to David. And Aviathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Aviathar, 
I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, how you have revealed yourself through history, through prophecy, through the gospels. O Lord, that we would know you in the perfection of your eternal person. O Lord, in the goodness of your promises. O Lord, even also in the institutions that you have caused to rise up and those that you have torn down. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom this evening as we look over the shoulder of our brothers that have gone before us, of the Old Testament church. Oh, Lord, help us to know how we should live in this world as a Christian people, the people of God. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Every day, Christians are confronted with one persistent question that comes with a variety of different colors, and that question is... What should we do when civil leaders act wickedly and endorse or command us to act wickedly and against the word of God? And you say, but pastor, have you got something specific in mind? No, there are quite too many to count. I can mention a few. It could be in a number of different ways. It could be the attack of the innocent or the refusal to defend the innocent. It could uh, likewise uh, be uh, the legalization of the mutilation of bodies regarding gender dysphoria. It could be a number of different things that our leaders in the present age are putting towards us as citizens under their oversight as they rule under the approval of God. They ought to be ruling in the fear of God. Uh, But I'm not speaking about specific issues, and I want to be very clear about that, but rather the broad idea of a wicked leader that doesn't fear God, that calls people under their rule... Uh, to submit to wicked instruction and commands. How should we then be? What then should we do? How can we also recognize these wicked leaders uh, in their wickedness? And so uh, three points I want us to see uh, this evening from the text of Scripture, which is admittedly not easily given uh, to sermons. So you'll notice that some of the verses go back and forth as we describe these three things. Uh, The first of them is that wicked leaders manipulate. Verses 6 through 8. Wicked leaders manipulate. Secondly, wicked people seek advancement. Verses 19, or sorry, 9, 18, and 19. 9, 18, and 19. And then lastly, godly people must boldly stand in the fear of God. Godly people must boldly stand in the fear of God, verses 14 and 15 and 17. You may think, well, there's some more to this chapter, and there is. We're going to give a little attention to that, but most of that will be lumped uh, with the next chapter because it has direct relevance to David and uh, the city of Keilah and its defense. And so we come to verse 6, and what do we find? Well, we're immediately told that Saul had heard that David was discovered, and the men also who were with him. 
And the way I think this ought to be understood is that Saul not only knows that David is not amongst the Philistines, but that he has a sense of specifically uh, where David has then gone to. Uh, You may recall that we were told where that is. That it's a kind of a untouchable place, uh, the cave of Adulam, and that it was just to the south of the city of Jerusalem, a place where people had thought that uh, the dead were dwelling. Uh, and that at that place, the cave of Adulam, uh, there David saw many people come to him, people who were uh, not happy with the rule of King Saul, who had great debts and who were otherwise a little bit grumpy. And so there is David uh, in this cleft of the rock, this stronghold, the cave of Adulam, and around him have uh, joined something of a rebellious militia uh, that haven't any good heart toward King Saul. And it seems that Saul knows where they are. Yet he's aware of it, that he's not in search. Now we're going to see Saul in search of David uh, after the coming defense of the city of Keilah. But at this time it seems that he has a sense of it. But I want you to take note of one thing. What does Saul not do? Well, he doesn't go after him. The next verse does not say Saul took his strong men or the, the guards or... Uh, any of his companies and went to pursue David instead. No, we read that as he learns or as he discovers or knows that David has been discovered, that he sits at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And there's this sense that whenever Saul is described that he is showing himself as a warring king. He's in the mode of defense. He doesn't have a scepter in his hand. No, he has an instrument of war. He's got that spear, the spear that we've heard about so many times, the one that has been thrown at the head of David, yet without finding its mark. And why is Saul like this? Well, I think it's because we've seen Saul again and again be a coward. He hasn't the courage or the conviction to then pursue David. And so he doesn't lead with character toward his enemy, valiantly going into battle. That's not Saul's heart. He's not courageous. He's vengeful. Instead, he sits and he has this mock authority under the tamarisk tree, most likely a place uh, of the leaders of the people of Benjamin, and he draws to himself all the servants of Benjamin. And one of the things that I think needs to be seen is that as he's there in Benjamin, he's in a safe place. He's in the place where his family members are, where he's at home. Uh, He should be surrounded by people that at least are happily disposed toward him. Uh, Wouldn't it make sense if the king came from your neighborhood and was part of your family that you would be at least favorable? It makes good sense, but that's where he is. And this could be for a number of reasons. It could be that Saul is hiding behind the shield of his family relations or uh, many other things. Because again, Saul is aware of what seems to be a rebellion. That's the way he understands it. The language he uses is that of conspiracy. Again, that's the language of an uprising against his uh, kingly power. But what he does next is he tries to control the people of Benjamin. And he does so by manipulation. So verse 7, he says to his servants who are standing all around him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? 
And I want to slowly unpack this because when we have him say this to these people, he's attempting to manipulate them in a variety of different ways. The first portion of his manipulation is an appeal to identity and to pride. See how he speaks to the people. Hear now, people of Benjamin, well, the son of Jesse, give every one of you fields. And so he pits these two portions of the household of Israel, one against the other. And you may rightly say, but aren't these all family? Yeah, they actually are. And you can have a better sense of the character of this because he takes the whole house of Benjamin. He doesn't call it the tribe of Saul, but rather the tribe of Benjamin. Don't you know you're Benjaminites? I mean, this isn't even all of Judah. It's just the household of Jesse. And you're going to cower in a corner against this this man, this son of Jesse? Isn't he the one that's really of no account of his own testimony? Of a household that has no glory? And so he's whispering in the ears. Oh, come on, Benjamin. Aren't you greater than this? Aren't you stronger than this? You're a whole tribe. This is not even all of Judah. This is just one son from a little-known man, a man named Jesse. Don't you think you're a little bit more than that? And I think we see this. We see it in a number of ways today. It's appealed in the terms of nationalism. People who are in civil leadership saying this or that about this country or that country. They cite national pride or national um, symbols uh, as evidences of the ideal of a people. And there's something of that. And do I think that a people can be, well, happily disposed to the history that God has given to them? I think so. I don't know that that's intrinsically a bad thing, but I do think whenever Saul does this, he's doing it in a wicked way. He's trying to control them. He's trying to lead them on by the leash of their pride. If you're really Benjaminites, are you going to be spoken down to and rebelled against by somebody as small as the son of Jesse? And then the second manipulation, he appeals to wealth and favors, to gifts of land and Appointments, And this could be understood in two ways. And maybe uh, it ought to have been read by the original readers and the original hearers in both of these ways. Uh, one sense is it could be that Saul is saying, Are you sure you want to be in any sense aligned with the son of Jesse? Don't you know that you have lands? Don't you know that some of you have uh, those positions of power, those appointments and the employment in the guard and in the military of Israel. As if Saul is saying, if you go after them, don't you know I can just pull these back? Don't you know the hand that feeds you? That could be one aspect. But I suspect that it's more strongly uh, the second, where he is as a weak leader saying, If you're looking for something good, if you're looking for favors, if you're looking for wealth, don't you think that you should look to the king? I'm the one that rewards humble and obedient servants. And so he's appealing to a sense of desire or advancement or greed in the ears of the people. If you want land, you want employment, don't you think you should come to me? I'm the one that has everything. We have leaders that do precisely this today and they do it in a variety of ways. 
Don't you think you should look to the state? Don't you think you should look to the leader? If you don't have me, everything's going to go up in flames. No other leader could possibly do the things that I do. Without me, ultimately, everything is going to go bust. An appeal to wealth, an appeal to favors, it's a really strong thing. And then in the third place, his manipulation is an appeal or really an accusation of conspiracy. That's the last thing uh, that he says because he's asked these various different pieces uh, of his accusation against him. Can he give you all these things that all of you have conspired against me? I don't know how you would feel about it, but if I were standing before a leader, one of the leaders of my own nation, and they accused me of a conspiracy or a rebellion or a treason, I wouldn't want that. It's not a good thing. It's not a happy thing. It's as if Saul is saying, if you come against me, you will be conspirators. And if you are conspirators, you deserve what conspiracy receives. A military response that is deadly. So now he's trying to cause them to cower in fear before him. It's a pitiful way of leadership. It's not the godly leadership that walks as a shepherd out in front of the sheep unto the Lord and leads them in godliness that they want to follow him naturally, that they hear his voice and that in his words are the season of holiness. Not at all. That's not what you have. It's different. Don't you think you're better than that? Don't you want what I can give you? Don't you see that if you come against me, I'll squish you and I'll put down any rebellion that then is cast to me. And still there's one more wicked, pitiful uh, manipulation that he brings against the people of Benjamin. He goes on and in verse uh, 8 he says, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And you can hear there's spin. He's taking this agreement between uh, Jesse and between David. This loving agreement between two men who cared about one another that had nothing to do with Saul except that neither of them wanted to die. There was no conspiracy against the king nor the kingdom. Yet, here he is and he's wanting to tell everybody, well... You should really believe my understanding of it. You should really believe the thing that I've said. And then he appeals to pity. None of you is sorry for me. I don't know how you would feel if a leader came to you and begged you for pity, but it's a really terrible and pitiful thing to read in the scripture. It is beneath the king. It is beneath the leader. It would be beneath your boss. It would be beneath any superior to their inferior to do this sort of thing. But it is the realm of the wicked. Don't you see, you ought to serve me and do me the good, even the good that I don't deserve. Again, there's no appeal to holiness. There's no appeal to God. There's no appeal to the call of the Lord. There's no appeal to the good of the people. There's no appeal to the good of the household of Israel. There's no appeal to the good of David. There's no appeal to any of that. It's simply threats, 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 offers, and then pity. And we as God's people ought to constantly have our ears and our hearts concerned with these things. We ought to be wise against these things. We ought to understand that in the day in which we live, just as in the ancient day, whenever a leader offers you a, uh, 
a deal too good to be true that it comes with strings attached and there is the expectation of some sort of fealty or loyalty to that leader. We ought to be a people more wise than that, a people discerning and a people not easily manipulated by wicked leaders who don't fear God. But then in verses 9, 18, and 19, we're going to leap ahead a little bit in this section, we see that wicked people seek advancement. Wicked people seek advancement. And we're turning our attention slightly away uh, from Saul, and we're looking directly at Doeg, the Edomite, this person who up until now we've seen just a little bit of. He was there whenever David came uh, to Nav and to Ahimelech, and inquired of the Lord and asked for bread and asked for a weapon. And uh, we mentioned several weeks ago, maybe even more than a month ago now, uh, that an Edomite was not an Israelite, that they were the descendants of Esau, they were the people of Edom, that they didn't have standing in the midst of Israel, nor did they have land, uh, nor did they have a, a vote or a place in the worship of the people of Israel, nor could they serve, uh, not in any commanding way uh, in the army of the people of Israel. They're foreigners. Yet, here's Doeg. And where is he? He's in the country of Benjamin. And when is he being called? Well, he's being called in the midst of all of the servants of Saul. And while the text doesn't tell us this, I think it's a fairly clear thing to discern. And you can see because of his actions uh, exactly where his heart is uh, specifically poised, especially against the background of the context of the Edomites, a people without a standing, a people without favor in the midst of Israel. And so Dog, hearing uh, this call to have some of the sons of Benjamin, some of the men of that tribe, to simply give a testimony against David, and no one does. Everyone's quiet. They're silent. That's where Saul is begging for pity. Doeg stands and he says, as, as if he raises his hand, Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what I saw. Uh, he says, I saw the son of Jesse, verse 9, coming to uh, Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahituv, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And that is a very basic account. Uh, that's really no more, um, not any less. He doesn't... Uh, add or contort. He doesn't give context. He just basically gives a fact. I saw this. He was there. And uh, some commentators have read this and thought, well, maybe, maybe Doeg is being careful and he's trying not to say too much to anger the other side just in case someone else wins. I don't think that that's there in the text. However, it does seem that after what seemed to be an offer of land and position... Doug is more than happy to seek that out and to give what no one else in the midst of Israel would give. And so you go down in the text, and I'll mention it very briefly because we're going to come back to it, where the priests, they do, after the testimony of Doug, they do go to Saul on his request, and they uh, do hear Saul uh, then read a terrible uh, sentence against the priest, that all of the priests should die, and likewise, the city of Nob should be uh, utterly destroyed. It should be cut down by the sword, uh, men, women, and children, and all the animals, completely destroyed. It's, it's a horrible thing. Uh, it's, 
It's the act of genocide to cut off an entire household. That's what's in view. And then as as that happens, as this terrible sentence is given down from Saul in just a moment, very quickly, without debate, without a jury, without any of the distinction of other people, like the priest or anybody else, Saul goes after these people. And what does he do? Well, he turns to his his footmen, earlier translations have said, his, his personal servants. Now, now, what sort of personal servants are we looking at? And what, what is this? Are, are they his bodyguard? Sure, they're, they're his bodyguard, but they are also people who would have done the well-keeping of Saul, who would have clothed him and, and dealt with things like laundry and, and brought him food and made sure that it was clean and not poisoned. They would have been those who... Uh, would have been near him to take into battle his armor and his arms. Uh, they would have been those who saw to his personal needs. So Saul turns and says, hey, you do this. And they refuse. We'll get to that in the third point. And then immediately, what does Saul do? Well, at least there's one person here that's loyal to me. It's Doeg, this Edomite, not even one of his servants, not even one of his subjects. And he commands him to go and to kill The priests of the Lord, specifically. Now, this is the first time that we have Ahimelech being spoken of as anything uh, other than the son of Ahituv. The priest of the Lord. And so you see in Saul's uh, sentence against these people and against the household, uh, not only a heart against specifically the family, but also a heart against God. Because what have we already said about the wicked ruler? The wicked ruler does not fear the Lord. He's not concerned with the Lord. In fact, whenever people hate God, where do they strike? Because God is a spirit without a body like men, as the children's catechism says. He's a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, well beyond the hands of men. Well, the the wicked ruler strikes the, the servants of the Lord, the mouthpieces of the God of heaven. And here we see it. Saul in anger against the Lord, the Lord's retraction of his call to be king, then takes it out specifically against these priests and the whole household of Ahituv, killing 85 priests, we're told, at the hand of Doeg. Not only that, but the entire town of Nob, all the men, the women, and the children, all the animals, everything put to death. Total warfare, complete, genocidal, horrible. And again, why would we assume that Doeg would do this? This would seem out of line, outlandish, extreme for anybody. Of the servants of Israel, none of them them said, I'll do it. No, in the fear of the Lord, they refused to do it. They wouldn't touch these priests. It's it's not just a wicked thing. It's an unholy thing, essentially, to do this kind of thing. Yet, here's Doeg, no fear of God. Well, it seems that he'll be the servant of whoever enriches him. He's no servant of God, and he has no fear of God. And certainly, we live in a time no different than this. We live in a time where people will do anything for advancement, when people will do anything for money, where people will do anything for position, where there is always a price 
There is always a place or something with which a person's heart, soul, and mind can be bought because they lack the fear of the Lord. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, I think you're reading something on to, to Doeg the Edomite. And maybe we are. I, I don't think that I am. But I would simply say that for a man to commit something so horrible, it only stands to reason that he felt as if there was something to gain. But then verses 14, 15 and 17, the godly must stand in the fear of God. So look at verse 14, and we have the response of, of Ahimelech in the face of King Saul. Verse 14, as he reports to him, he answers the king, And whom among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. To this point, this is the most that has been said in the presence of Saul in opposition to Saul. We've not seen David come forward with this. We've not seen Jonathan come forward in like manner. No. No, it's a priest. And it's a priest that we know relatively little about. But we do know that he is one of the priests of the Lord. And at this time, uh, he's the high priest. Or we presume that he's the high priest. He's the one in charge of the worship of the people of God, and he's the one in charge of the household of the priesthood at Nath. And here, what does he do? Does he then curse and deride the wickedness of Saul, who's called him out and accused him of coming against the kingship, against the throne, and against the kingdom as a whole, along with David? No. No, he doesn't accuse him of anything. He doesn't say, Oh, you wicked Saul, oh, you foolish king. Oh, you little thing, you're nothing. How should I listen to you? There's none of that at all. He speaks the truth. That's what he does. And he does so with courage. He stands boldly and resolutely before a king. That, well, he should presume will kill him for what he says. The first thing he says has to do with David. Now, that's incredible courage. He defends the Lord's anointed. He says, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? No one else is as faithful to you as David is, Saul. Take reason. Examine it. What has David done against you? He's the most faithful of all your men. Don't you see? As everyone quivers in silence, David is the only one who has served you with faithfulness. How can you think that David would come against you. That's the first piece of the testimony. And he says it so clearly. He doesn't engage in argument. He just tells him the truth. He speaks the truth and he does so with clarity and with courage. He goes on and then he speaks to the relation of David and the king. He says, not only is he faithful, but he's your son-in-law. He's a member of your own household, the husband of your daughter, a man who you gave an impossible task that he might come into your household who completed it under the Lord and is now to you a son. Saul, don't you understand what you're doing? 
You're ripping your family into shreds. You're doing a wicked thing. And so he calls him to account on the faithfulness of David and on the sonship that David now has in his household. Moreover, in his faithful service as an officer in the army of the people of Israel. He is a captain over your personal bodyguard, Saul. Don't you think if he wanted you dead, he would have given them sharp knives by now? Don't you think if he was really against you, Saul, that this would have already gone poorly for you? It has that weight, even though he doesn't bring the full argumentation. He just states the fact. Why would I ever think this man of all men would ever be against you? He's faithful. He's your son-in-law. He's an officer within your army. He's a good man. And then he goes on and he says, he's honored in your house. What does he speak of? Well, this relates back to uh, the situation where uh, Jonathan and David were concerned about David's absence from the table of Saul. And you remember uh, there was the episode with the shooting of the arrows and the boy and the communication between uh, Jonathan and David as David hid uh, to get some word of whether he should run for his life. It's a place of honor. He was not only a man in the household, but he was a man at court. He was something of a, a public official outside of his army uh, re- requirements and responsibilities. He was something of a public official or a public person along with Saul, understood by everybody to be a faithful person and no point and in no way an enemy of Saul, but a man specifically at his table. He's saying, come on, Saul. Why would I ever think this man would be against you? He's given every reason to the opposite. Come on, Saul. And so he simply, as a godly man, stands in the fear of God more than in the fear of Saul. And he tells the truth. He tells the truth. Moreover, he goes on and he says essentially this. Saul, don't you know I've inquired of the Lord for him before? I've been his pastor for a long time. Why wouldn't he come to me? It's that kind of thing. Come on, Saul. Don't you think he would always come to me? Don't you know that I've inquired of the Lord? I've prayed for him. I've sought the Lord's favor in times of battle as he's waged war for you. Don't you see? Come on, Saul. And so it's a clear testimony of the truth. It's a clear testimony of the truth in fear of God rather than in fear of men. And so where am I going with this? That we as God's people, when faced with similar situations, we are not given commission to then be those who would slander and deride and publicly criticize the leaders that are over us. Didn't we just read that? Fear the Lord and honor the emperor. We just read that in 2 Peter. However, we are to be a people that fear God over the fear of men. Where we fear the Lord and his instruction and his call and his truth over all things. And that we stand and we speak the truth in fear of the Lord. Even willing that wicked men would do evil things to us. Because we believe that God is a God of justice. We speak the truth in clarity and in boldness. That's what the church needs to do today. We need to be a people that live according to the commands of God, that live according to the holiness of God, and that we honor our leaders so far as we are able to, and that we stand in the truth in every circumstance. And also, secondarily, resist 
and peaceably refuse to do unholy things in the fear of the Lord. You may say, well, come on, pastor, I haven't heard that in Ahimelech, but I would point you to the servants of Saul, those bodyguards, those footmen. Verse 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the, house, uh, the, priest of the Lord because their hands are also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And then what happens? But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. We're not told what they said. We're not told if they said anything. You could imagine a number of different situations. Maybe they took their swords and placed them firmly in the sheath. Maybe they took their swords, cast them to the ground. Maybe they said, Saul, sorry, we are too afraid to do what you propose. They civilly disobey an unholy command. They hear a, a commandment of a king or a civil leader coming to them, do this, do this thing. And they know that if they do that, they are then guilty of treason against God of an act against his holiness and against his word and against his kingdom and his order. The Lord says, thou shalt not kill. And certainly it would be a wicked thing to take up a sword against the priests, the servants of the Lord. They refuse to do it. Why is that and how can that be? Again, it's the fear of the Lord. They're more afraid of God than they are of Saul. Some commentators write and they say, oh, well, maybe it is they think simply this. Well, we won't do it. And Saul, who do you have that is willing to do it if it's not us? Well, apparently he had Doeg the Edomite. Instead, I think that they take a faithful stand in the fear of the Lord, ready to submit themselves to something horrible, just as Saul unleashed against the priest and the people of Noth. And so again, where are we Christians? What should we do? How are we to respond? Well, we're to speak the truth boldly. We're to stand on the commands of God. We're not to then raise a rebellious group. We're not to then do certain things. Those are other things and other ethical questions that come along in different places. But how does the church deal with commands or laws that are ungodly? We should speak the truth with courage and boldness in the fear of the Lord. Whenever asked what is the power of the church, it is ministerial and declarative. We don't have civil power. We don't have military power. But what we do is we have the voice of God in the scriptures that we can read loudly for the conversion and the conviction of the hearts of men and especially of civil leaders. And we ought to be sober about this. And we ought to be a people that understand that this is what the Lord has modeled in scripture and put into our hands. Did Jesus raise up an army whenever he was taken by the hands of wicked men and authorities? Did he raise up an army? Did he approve of Peter slicing the ear from Malchus? No, no, that's not at all what he did. We know that that was much larger, right? That was a much bigger situation as he died for the sins of the world. But what did Jesus do? He gave his hands over to wicked men. He endured it all in the fear of the Lord. Because he desired God's will. And whenever he spoke, what did he say to Pilate? You would have no authority if it had not been given unto you. 
It was in the fear of the Lord, and Jesus submitted to it all, and he took up the cross. And likewise, the church has mirrored this, and in the apostolic era with the church fathers, the first couple centuries, what do you see? You see men like Ignatius of Antioch saying, let my body be ground by the teeth of beast and be made as grain into holy bread. That's the sort of thing that was said by the early church, willing to go into martyrdom out of the fear of the Lord, because why? Ignatius wouldn't worship Caesar as God. Likewise, you and I ought to be people that fear the Lord and that act according to his commands, that speak the truth with all boldness, and behave in a holy manner that honors the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and for the clarity that we have within them. Lord, for the examples that we have seen, O Lord, in the ancient church. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage, that we could speak boldly. Uh, Lord, that we wouldn't uh, cower before institutions, uh, before presidents, before armies. But Lord, that we would simply be people who have our hearts wrapped around your glory and the truth that honors and glorifies you. Lord, we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.